Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottom is our interpretive guide. In 1922, Knoxville Aero Corporation was the proud owner of the first privately owned aeroplane in the city, christened Airship Knoxville. This article tells of one of the corporation's efforts to find a commercial application for their cutting-edge investment, that of running charter flights into the Smokies. Onboard Airship Knoxville by J.R. Miller, the Knoxville Sentinel, June 25, 1922. Aerial flight from Knoxville to Gregory Bald, more than 6,000 feet above the sea and in excess of one mile higher than the city of Knoxville, is a thrill soon to be enjoyed by devotees of the aviation pastime. A brand new highway from Knoxville through Maryville and onto the Tennessee-Carolina state line, there to meet a similar road into the Carolinas and thence to Asheville, is also an early prospect. To determine a landing place for the aeroplane on the summit of Gregory Bald Mountain on the Tennessee-North Carolina line was the purpose of an expedition into the Great Smoky Mountains by a number of the leading men of Blount County and a Sentinel reporter. The party, consisting of J.M. Depew, A.J. Fisher, J.H. Staley, D.W. Brooks, S.H. Franklin, and Professor Horace Ellis of Maryville College, acting secretary of the Maryville Board of Commerce, left Maryville Thursday afternoon to motor as far as possible into the mountains and then continue the journey afoot to Gregory Bald, the foot of that eminence which lies beyond the Chilhowee Mountains on the east side of Cades Cove, was reached late Thursday evening, and the party spent the night in a cabin on the property of the Butler Timber Company. The route from Maryville to Gregory Bald winds through the Chilhowee Range beyond Walland and over Rich Mountain and Cades Cove Mountain into Cades Cove's level, fertile valley about nine miles long and several miles wide. It is between Cades Cove Mountain and the Forest Ridge, which mounts up to Gregory Bald, Thunderhead, Blockhouse, Klingman's Dome, and other of the highest points of the Great Smokies. Blunt County has completed an excellent graded road, twining around among the Great Mountains and down into Cades Cove to a point eight miles from the Carolina boundary. From this point on, there is no road. The scenic valley of the route cannot possibly be overestimated or praised too highly. It lies in the most beautiful mountain country of the eastern portion of the United States, threading the sides of the ranges and affording marvelous views of others standing blue and silent in the distance. Mount LeConte can be seen above the others, standing as if ruler of them all. Swain County, North Carolina, has already provided funds for the construction of a road westward as far as the state line, and Blount County is expected to meet this highway with an extension of its newly completed road crossing the last eight miles through Cades Cove to the state boundary. This proposed extension would open automobile travel into North Carolina over a new and much shorter and more beautiful route connecting with the main highway between Asheville and Murphy, North Carolina at Bushnell and almost cutting in half the touring distance from Knoxville to Asheville. Unless Blunt County does meet the Swain County Road at the state line, the new highway will not be of use to East Tennessee because of the eight impassable miles which lie between the end of the present Blunt County Road and the state boundary. Swain County has provided $400,000 to build its end of the new highway, 
and $100,000 will be sufficient to build Blount County's part to meet the work of the North Carolina County and open this incomparable scenic route for through touring between the two states. Blount County will not rely upon federal and state highway aid in this undertaking, but will endeavor to secure sufficient funds through the means of a bond issue to be authorized by the county court. Early in the morning, the party of men from Maryville left the cabin in Cades Cove for a three hours climb up over Forest Ridge to the top of Gregory Bald, a point about 6,000 feet above sea level and approximately a mile higher than the city of Knoxville. A mountain herdsman who was well acquainted with every trail in the whole countryside led the party by steep and winding ways through the dense timberland up to the summit. Gregory Bald derived its name from the fact that at the highest point on the mountain there is a large semicircular tract of about 100 acres shaped exactly like a gigantic ball. This is entirely without trees or underbrush. It is covered with grass and rocks and forms an impressive contrast to the densely wooded country all around. From the top of Gregory Bald there is a view which cannot be called anything but inspiring. The line of sight is not obstructed in any directions as there are no trees and the summit is one of the highest points in the section. As far as the eye can reach are mountains, range upon range, towering irregularly as without plan. From Gregory Bald, which is one of the Great Smokies, can be seen the Blue Ridge, the Chilhowies, Clinch, the Cumberlands, and all the rest of the Smokies, including LeConte, over them all. It was on this site that a landing place for aeroplanes was sought. J.G. Ray of the Knoxville Aero Corporation arrived early Friday afternoon with J.H. Mitchell of Maryville. Mr. Ray landed his ship in a field in Cades Cove and climbed to Gregory Bald to join the party already there and investigate as to availability of an aeroplane landing. Mr. Ray decided that space was sufficient and many rocks were removed to assure a smooth landing. The original plan was to effect a landing on the Gregory Bald Summit Friday, but unusual wind conditions brought about by a strong gale blowing straight from the north caused the aviator to postpone the first landing until a day in the near future when wind conditions may be more nearly normal. Mr. Ray is confident that a regular landing field can be established upon Gregory Bald, which in such event will be selected by the Knoxville Aero Corporation as a destination for regular flights carrying passengers from Knoxville and Maryville. This trip will be one of the best scenic excursions conceivable and will afford the people of East Tennessee an extraordinary opportunity to become acquainted with the natural beauty of their own country. It is the dream of men interested to establish a resort hotel on the summit or some other suitable site nearby on Gregory Bald, with aeroplane transportation assured and a private road built to join the proposed highway through Cades Cove, access to the resort would be made easy. It is never hot on top of Gregory Bald, even in the middle of the hottest day. Pure water flows from a number of clear, cold springs very near the summit, and the beauty of the immediate vicinity is only surpassed by the glory of the outlook, the Tennessee-North Carolina mountains. Only a few isolate patches of cultivated land can be seen among the mountains, 
and as most of the land is in the hands of lumber companies, whose welfare demands that the timber supply be kept up, it is probable that the wild beauty of the unsettled land will be retained for all time. The laurel, the rhododendron, and the many-colored wild honeysuckle, among the gnarled little red haw trees, furnish a free wild beauty incomparable to the work of the most accomplished landscape expert. A hotel on such a place would be a boon to many people who are unable to know the real beauty and grandeur of this country so close to home because of the actual absence of means of transportation into it and of proper accommodations there. Late in the evening, the party descended from Gregory Bald, descended much faster than they had ascended, and arrived in Cades Cove, tired but thoroughly enthusiastic over the revelation which had come of the trip, and the hope of securing, by highway, hotel, and aeroplane, a possible way to introduce travelers into this little-known region. On account of the late hour, Mr. Ray volunteered to bring a sentinel reporter, who had accompanied the Maryville party, back to Knoxville at his plane. If there is anything in the world more glorious than being in the mountains, it is being over them, and surely there is no possibility beyond this. The route of the aeroplane was out of Cades Cove, around the end of Rich Mountain, over the Chilhowie Range, and above Townsend, Walland, and Maryville, to the aviation field of the Knoxville Aero Corporation on Kingston Pike. This entire trip, including a stop in Maryville for Mr. Mitchell to disembark, required less than 40 minutes. In spite of the great speed maintained, there was no sensation of speed or instability, only a feeling of hovering over the mountaintops, as if moving at a very slow rate. The sensation of speed was comparable to that of riding in an automobile on smooth road at a rate of many miles per hour. The still mountains down below, darkening in the falling light of evening, standing guard over innumerable little valleys and coves, made a sight incomparable. This is Knox County historian Steve Cottom. Hello, Steve. Hello. The airplane was really new to Knoxville. The first time, probably the first time anybody ever saw an airplane was at the Appalachian Exposition in 1910, which is, you know, respectably early. That The uh, airplane had just been invented six years before that. But at the Exposition, they had a, a biplane that was flown briefly near the Exposition, and they also had a Zeppelin. So they got to see, you know, state-of-the-art travel for 1910. In the teens, airplanes were so new and people were playing with them. And so some barnstormers came through and periodically took people for little rides. But really there was nothing like air travel at all. And it was really after World War I that we began to get some kind of serious interest in airplanes and their potential. And that really, a lot of that really was because of the war and the fact that the airplane was using reconnaissance in the war for both sides, and that was very uh, dramatic. Uh, there were dramatic stories, and it's, it heightened the romance of being a pilot and flying a plane. Um, several Knoxville people were trained as as pilots or as reconnaissance experts. Robin Thompson wasn't a pilot. He was trained to do aerial photography right at the end of the war. He never actually got to Europe. He never actually did that, but he was trained to do it at, at Rochester, New York. And the planes that the military developed had a camera mounted in the plane so that the, the photographer was really 
not taking any great risk in trying to expose a glass plate. You have to remember they had the heavy camera, they had glass plates, mm -hmm. and it was very cumbersome equipment. And when Robin took the first aerial photographs of Knoxville in 1922 or 24, I can't remember, he um, flew over down, he flew at an uh, uh, altitude, I think, of just 2,000 feet. But he stood up in his seat in the plane with his big heavy camera, which I think weighed about 70 pounds, and had the plate in it and exposed the plate. And then he had to sit back down and take the plate out <laughs> and put a new glass plate in. <laughs> they were five by seven plates. So, it, you know, he was hanging, literally hanging out of the airplane with mm -hmm. this heavy, heavy camera. So yeah. He would have had a high center of gravity. And you have to think about the wind, the wind. and all the other things. And he flew over downtown. He took pictures for the... I believe it was the Knoxville Journal, and they were actually published in the paper, and they were the first aerial photographs of Knoxville. And then later that, of course, became something that was a, kind of a sideline of business for various photographers, but it was probably not ever any more exciting than it was for the uh, the young <laughs> photographer hanging out of the airplane. I think he was the one that had the most dangerous job. Mm -hmm. Well, did your collection get any of those photos? Yeah, we have uh, we have some of the a few of those really early aerial photographs in the Thompson collection. Robin and Jim Thompson were partners uh, for a time in the 1920s, and that is when he was doing the aerial photographs uh, in mid 20s. And uh, the, the partnership broke up later, but Jim Thompson bought all the negatives for the from the business, and so they're still with the ones that that we have today. Everybody who had the um, the connections wanted to be a pilot. That was just romantic. So, and McGee Tyson was a pilot, uh, and his plane went down in the North Sea right at the end of the war, and he he died. So his family, of course, memorialized him with our McGee Tyson Airport. But another person who got interested in flying was uh, George Chambliss, who was the son of a very successful Knoxville druggist, Dan Chambliss, very a civic leader, a successful businessman. And after the war was over, uh, it was back in Knoxville in 1923, some partners got together. They bought shares in Knoxville Aerocorp and, and bought an airplane. They bought the first airplane that was owned by somebody in Knoxville and tried to see if, it was, if there was any potential to make money, but I think it was probably a lot about having a chance to fly that plane. <laughs> the G-Wiz factor. The G-Wiz factor, yeah. And uh, so there are, I think, five or six partners. And in 1923, they bought the plane, they christened it, they broke a bottle of champagne on its nose. and The, flew, the Airship Knoxville. The Airship Knoxville, mm -hmm. and flew around. And I, I think this trip up to the Smokies was an exploratory trip to see if there would be interest for people to go up there, because you could get up there fairly quickly compared to taking the train, which would take you um, maybe three hours, four hours to get from Knoxville up to Elkmont, and you could get up there much quicker in the plane, but it was somewhat more dangerous. It was very exciting to see the scenery if it was pretty, so it, it had its trade-offs, and I think that a lot of this was really just promotion for the, for the airplane, and this business venture lasted for about five years maybe, up to maybe 27, 28, and then Knoxville Aerocorp went under. But there were a lot of um, other people in the community who, who'd gotten the bug to be pilots and bought private planes. 
Charles Griffith was one of them. He was a businessman in Knoxville who had coal mines in the little town of Pruden, and he got his plane, learned to fly, and he was flying up there to do business whenever he needed to go to Pruden. So there, the airplane had sort of gotten its, you know, had gotten itself established as a phenomenon of local life. Um, do you know when they ever actually landed on Gregory Bald? Were they able to do that eventually? They, they did actually land up there. And uh, and I, I don't know that they ever made more than a couple mm-hmm. of flights. because mm-hmm. like, I don't know if anybody wanted to do that just for a lark. I think that would have really been... They operated mainly a charter service. So that would have mm-hmm. probably been the, the hook would have been if people thought, oh, that's fun, let's, you know, rent the plane and fly to the <laughs> Gregory Bald or wherever. And, and come back. I came across another article in the paper of about a year later mm-hmm. where they were trying to also land on Max Patch mm-hmm. on the North Carolina Tennessee line mm-hmm. and again failed due to the weather mm-hmm. that yeah. time. But yeah, wanted to come back and try it again. Well, I think the weather, the wind and the weather conditions of those little planes were always problematic. But uh, they, they were, I wouldn't say they were doing stunts, but they were, they were probably having fun flying and and they were all taking off from different places there was not even i mean until 1927 there was not an airfield so people were taking off from the most popular place was whittle springs golf course but some people were taking off from uh pastures uh fields near their houses out holston or (laughs) just different places (laughs) wherever there was a long, long enough runway that was fairly clear for them to get to get airborne and um so the the airplane business in Knoxville was uh, was just getting a toehold right at the time the airport got established. The original airport, which was on Sutherland Avenue out near West High School, and that was uh, that was 1927 when uh, Walter Self started an airfield, and I mean, he was trying to offer a service to people because there are all these people now who have planes that are flying, and there and there are also people flying around the country who mainly own private planes at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanted to give them a place to, you know, to put their plane. He had a hangar built. The first hangar burned, and then the city bought that piece of property to create the first municipal airport in 1929. And it was named in honor of McGee Tyson because the family had made gifts to the city of money uh, in memory of their son. And they wanted um, two things. There's the park, which is named for him, and also, there is the airport, and uh, that the the descendants of of the Tysons, the Gilpin family, are very determined that the airport shall continue to have the name that that was given to it when it started back in 1929. We often have people call the Lawson McGee Library and say, "Is this the McGee Tyson Library?" <laughs> people get the McGees, McClungs. Uh, Lawson's, Tyson's, all tangled up, and it's because they're all related by marriage, and so that there is just a real, you know, mishmash of names that people get tangled up in their head. But uh, the airport was moved out to its current site in Blount County in 1935, and uh, there were diff- there was a downtown airport, the Little Island Home Airport, which which was a little competition, but uh, there were also Increasingly, there were regulations about safety for airplanes and lengths of runways and that kind of thing. And and the city was looking ahead to a, a time when they, they might really need some longer runways than they could get any place. They looked at different sites, but the uh, one that had the most potential was the one that's 
so far away in Blount County because they were able to buy 1,400 acres of land and there was more vacant land around that farmland mm -hmm. so they could expand and build long runways. And that, that got, the airport got built out there in the 30s, opened 1936, and I think that was with federal money. We were in another depression back then and the new airport opened. But they were also looking ahead to uh, the possible need for it to serve military needs because World War II was sort of out there looming on the horizon and they were thinking about military transports flying across country. Uh, so there was, a, there was a couple of different things going on when the airport moved out there. By that point, the older guard uh, of the pilots who really got the bug got, some of them actually did go into, uh, into the aviation business. Tom Kesterson, who was one of the, the early uh, pilots, got really interested in flying, started uh, uh, his own private airline which was a small commercial airline that became Cherokee Aviation, still exists today. When McGee-Tyson Airport opened in Blount County in 1936, there was very little commercial air traffic. All of that came later, but it was the airport was already there and it was it was ready. You know, it's the build it and they will come syndrome, mm -hmm. <laughs> except this time they did. <laughs> and it was Delta and Southern and all the other airlines gradually actually began to have commercial service and we had our airport out there even though it was uh, sort of like Newark Airport for New York City. I mean it's a long way out there. <laughs> yeah. Not that far, but anyway it's a good little trek out there. But it was a it was that site was picked for, for very good reason. There were some really interesting barnstormers that were around Knoxville, you know, that daredevil pilots in the early days. Vic Wheels wrote about a lot of them in his newspaper columns in the eighties. I think the one he was one of the ones he was really fond of was Frank Andre, who was a, an early pilot, and I believe he's the one who flew his plane on a, on a bet or a dare through under and through the Gay Street Bridge span and terrorized downtown for, <laughs> for a little while. I would be terrified. Every now and then when I'm walking around downtown, I'll see a plane that I think is really too large mm -hmm. to be landing at Island Home Airport mm -hmm. go down what seems to be just... Mm -hmm half a mile from downtown, mm -hmm. and it, it always think? makes me worry what's going on <laughs> over there. Well, it's, a, it, it's an interesting, interesting story, I think. There's a kind of thread that runs back through from the barnstormers to, um, to the airport out there. Thank you very much, Steve. You're welcome. You've been listening to Stark Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, Copyright 2008 by Knox County Public Library. The music was performed by Music Therapy and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past.